welcome to The Fine Print, a National Museum's NI four-part podcast that looks at exhibitions held in the Ulster Museum through the prism of the art of printmaking. My name is Anna Leeching. I am curator of art at the Ulster Museum, and one of the collections I'm responsible for is works of art on paper, which includes nearly 2,000 prints. We decided to create this podcast during lockdown as we haven't been able to have our usual talks, tours and events programme that would accompany exhibitions. As a curator, I have really missed these discussions and interactions with visitors and other art professionals, so it has been great to take the time to do that, but in a different format. The following episodes were recorded remotely from our homes. Each episode is a conversation between myself and another artist, writer, curator or creative taking an Ulster Museum exhibition as our theme. Making Her Mark was an exhibition I curated on women printmakers back in 2018. One of the first tours of the exhibition I gave was to our group of participants from the Reimagine, Remake, Replay programme. Neve Kelly was in that group. Since then, she has gone from participant to organiser. Neve and I took some time to chat about her role, the project she works with, and her impression of the Making Her Mark exhibition. It was a great opportunity for me to revisit my research and thinking behind the show, and also to celebrate these women artists again. The exhibition lives on in a publication, which we also discuss. You can buy one for yourself at the Ulster Museum shop. So Naive, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with me today about making her mark and your job and the Reimagine, Remake, Replay project. I always have to take a minute to say that because we love we love alliteration in the museum and art sector and you can kind of stumble over your words quite a lot. So we'll probably call it RRR from now on, which is also hard to say, but we'll see how we go. So Reimagine, Remake, Replay is a really exciting initiative that's been going on for a good few years now in the Ulster Museum, but it's in partnership between Northern Ireland Museums Council, National Museums NI and the Nerve Centre. So that involves all of the four museums in National Museums NI and then all the local authority museums across the north of Ireland. And I really loved being part of the project over the last few years because it's I hate saying the term young people, but it's the idea of getting young people into museums and reacting to the collection in innovative and new ways and kind of shaking us up a bit as curators and staff and sort of looking at the collection with fresh eyes. And I've really enjoyed working with you over the last few years, especially you as well. You've kind of gone from participant to member of of running the programme. And your title is Youth Ambassador. So could you explain what that means and maybe a bit more about RRR and the wider programme? Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much for inviting me on to do this, Anna. Um, I'd say that's a really good description of RRR, which, as you say, is very difficult to say. (laughs) Um, That's a really good description of what we do. It's all about bringing young people aged 16 to 25 into museums across Northern Ireland and helping them to engage with the collections and we're usually using digital technology or really creative means to do that and really to create responses to collections um, that we can actually then showcase alongside them and really open up a dialogue with them you know using what we make Um, but as you say I'm now the youth ambassador on the project but I started off as a participant and I started off in September 2018 that's when I first actually participated in a program um, and it was the Digital Makers Club in the Ulster Museum and Making Her Mark was on in the museum at that time so actually going to that exhibition um, and creating work in response to it that was one of my first experiences of both the project and that exhibition so it really helped shaped how I perceive the museum and actually see it as somewhere you know that aligns with my interests that can be a place for young people Um, and it really you know it surprised me it wasn't something I thought I was going to see in the museum Um, and that definitely I think was a consensus in the group that I was with Um, and we were all really like just fascinated by the pieces um, by how they were created together and like what we learned from that exhibition and how it sort of was presenting something 
lost or that really could have been lost so we all really enjoyed it and got hands-on with creating pieces in response to it as well and um, so this is a really nice opportunity actually to be able to look back on that time and to ask you some questions and sort of reminisce on what it meant to me as a participant on the project as well. And can you talk a wee bit more now about your role now since beyond that like what is a youth ambassador? Yeah, certainly. So um, it's a really new role. I just started in February there of 2020. So really sort of just before lockdown. And I had a short time really experiencing what my role was like before we moved to online delivery, which we did at the start of lockdown. But really a youth ambassador, the role was created because the project is very much led in a way that's, you know, governed and shaped by participants so it's very much led by their ideas their interests and their input so I think really the project warranted creating a role for a staff member that reflected that and that could further that work Um, and it was advertised as something that was for a past participant so I applied for that and I've been doing it now for probably six months or so but really it's being involved in all aspects of running the program and I've actually been able to create and lead my own programs and so for example the creative writing program we ran that at the start of lockdown and that's coming up again soon Um, but it's also just being involved in all the kind of day-to-day running of the project and in strategic things like evaluation or you know kind of creating those sort of documents that like planning for the project um, and also then representing it at talks or things with our funders or something like this as well so it's really it's a really holistic kind of role and you're able to have your input in all aspects and hopefully champion the youth part of the project. I think that's what's really exciting about RRR in general because I know I've worked with you on lots of different things and even last year there was a group of you ran a museum late night so it's not just about sort of making work and working with the digital technologies it's also about doing actual programming so it gives a lot of people experience in museums work like you're doing what I do in my job like organizing events and organizing talks and learning how we do that and what works and what doesn't work so that you can sort of explore what roles you can go into yourselves professionally that maybe you wouldn't have been aware of beforehand so I think that's what's really exciting about the project. So Neve, going back to your time at the start of Reimagine Remake Replay, whenever you came on board as a participant, and I think you said Making Her Mark was the first exhibition you came to see, or one of the first exhibitions you saw in the Ulster Museum. And I was probably one of the first curators you ever like had a chance to speak with or work with as part of the project. And I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that first experience. And if there was any questions you had about the exhibition, I'd love to chat about them. Yeah, definitely. So I find making her mark really refreshing um, and really inspiring. You know, it's subject matter is something I would have been interested in anyway, but I just didn't know about. Um, So to see that I found really refreshing and that shaped how I saw the museum, that actually it was somewhere that I could learn about something that I was interested in, that aligned with my kind of views and you could tell it had been researched and written in a very feminist way, like it painted a really clear picture of what was facing these women at the time of their making and what it took for them to exist as artists. But you also got a sense of the work that went into creating it and that it was making sure that there wasn't that gap in art history and that their work wasn't lost or wasn't unheard. So that very much aligned with the project for me because... A lot of the work that I did was kind of about the missing voice of the young person in the museum. So there's definitely a commonality there about work being done as well to make sure there's that kind of representation in the museum. And I find it like really, really inspiring. So I was wondering then if I could ask you some questions, Anna, and this is a really good opportunity kind of for us both to look back to 2018 to the exhibition but also to me starting on the project and how I felt about it at the time. So just to start off um, I was wondering how the exhibition came about so why specifically was it created at that point in time and what was your aim in making it? Making a mark the exhibition itself was a very long time in the making. Normally 
with my exhibitions, with any exhibitions in the Ulster Museum for any curator we work, maybe one to two years in advance. But this one was quite different because it was sort of three to maybe six years. Um, and though I'm an art curator, I was part of the, of the Ulster Museum and look after the Ulster Museum art collection. And I look after lots of different collections within that. My main responsibility is works of art on paper. But aside from all of that, my kind of personal research interest is women artists. And it's really this idea of redressing the imbalance of how women artists have been represented in art history. There's like a common misconception that women artists didn't really exist before 1960 and that it's only really with the likes of sort of post-war art and people like Barbara Hepworth and people like that, that 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 was only whenever women started to become professional artists. But actually around a third of all practicing professional artists have been women for the last 300 years and it's just the way that they've been recorded or the lack of recording that is the reason that people don't really know this or have these these, these wrong misconceptions and I'm actually part of a subgroup a subject specialist network group which is another long-winded title and <laughs> called women's art 1750 to 1950 and in this group it's art curators art historians all across the world all women who, just coincidentally all women, who are looking at this idea of redressing the imbalance of how women are represented in art history. And really what we're doing is rewriting art history. It's like we need to rewrite the last three to 400 years of what has been written. And that also really kind of goes back to why I even wanted to be a museum curator in the first place. Like I am very passionate about my role and the, the reason that curators exist, especially here in public museums where we are very lucky to have free museums and free access. It's my job to provide access to information and access to stories of art and stories of art history. And I think now it's a lot more of a common discussion, but even whenever I was starting, it wasn't sort of acknowledging that history has been very linear and is often just recording the stories of white privileged men. And it's really important now to go back and point out that life is a lot more complicated and there's a lot more sort of multiple narratives to talk about. And I always think back to, it was back in 2009, just when I first started working in museums, there's a Chimanda Nagoche Adichie TED talk where she talks about the danger of a single story. And I always go back to that talk every time I kind of am looking at my research and, and what I'm trying to do with my job. So that's kind of the wider platform for how this exhibition came about. But practically back in 2014, 2015, I started to take over the works of art on paper collection and was literally just like trawling through, we call them slander boxes, which are like these large boxes that hold the works on paper out of frames. And I came across this print by Ethel Gaben, which is in the exhibition and the publication. And it's also a postcard in the Austin Museum shop. And it's always been, it still is probably my favorite print in the collection. It's a very beautiful piece. And I got really interested in her and started reading about her and then started reading about other printmakers and noticed this pattern amongst women printmakers that a lot of them were professional artists who became printmakers to support their families and often to support their artist husbands. And it was this pattern that I just kept coming across. And then as I got to know the collection more and research our own collection, I discovered that we had this amazing body of work by women printmakers, mostly from the wood engraving revival of the early 20th century. And amongst other works by other very famous wood engravers as well and printmakers had all been gifted by this woman, Lady Mabel Ansley. And Lady Mabel Ansley was an Anglo-Irish aristocrat, but she very much considered herself as Irish. She was born and raised in Castle Welland. That was her family's estate in County Down, which she ended up owning and running. And she was a great advocate for printmaking and women printmakers and gifted, I think, around in the end, about 150 works to the Ulster Museum in her lifetime. And that really was the foundation of the print collection. So this exhibition was really, it was a celebration of her and that gift. And it was the chance to have a little mini retrospective of her. She also made her own prints and her own wood engravings. Most artists in the exhibition maybe had one to three works, whereas Mabel Ansley, I think I have 12, because it was a chance to really show off her skill and her talent and to thank her for the gift and also then to celebrate um, women artists in this wider platform and talk about how much they'd supported printmaking and how just really they'd use the power of print to support themselves and their families and then the fact that it opened in 2018 was slightly coincidental it all kind of came around at the right time and obviously I had been researching for a long time but then I became permanent art curator I think just sort of the year before so I was able to kind of 
then start putting together my own exhibition program which is why that came together but also 2018 was the centenary of the representation of the people's act and it was a chance obviously whenever some women not all women but some very privileged women were awarded the chance to vote and it was a chance to to mark that centenary and then making her mark then became part of hear her voice which was a year-long program of events talks film screenings that i ran to celebrate the centenary and to really celebrate sort of women artists and women in history. So there was a lot of factors to the exhibition, but it all kind of came together nicely to be marked in 2018. I think that's a really interesting insight how all these things are kind of aligning, you know, you know, different events and, you know, the fact that there is this gift. I think that's a really interesting, you know, story behind the exhibition, but also it's just interesting to hear as well more about your ethos as a creator and I think you know the feminist creation really came across when we were walking around that exhibition or you know hearing talks from you as part of the program as well like that was definitely impressed upon me as someone who wouldn't have expected or you know just wasn't aware that I could access that kind of education in the museum and that it was kind of like an untapped resource for me as someone who naturally is interested in that as well. So I think, you know, that really kind of kick-started uh, interest in the museum for me as well and um, was definitely part of that as well as the kind of way that RR works too. Um, I think something that's really interesting and you sort of mentioned there about um, the wood engraving revival, um, could you speak a bit more about the medium of printmaking in the late 19th and early 20th century, kind of what was going on at the time and how it was possible for this art form um, to give rise to that, like in that particular historical moment. So the wood engraving revival kind of came out of the arts and crafts movement and arts and crafts exhibition society. Whenever people think of arts and crafts or hear the term arts and crafts, a lot of you might think of like William Morris and, and the wallpaper. And that was, I think it was 1887, whenever the sort of term arts and crafts was established and it was part of this, because of this exhibition called the Arts and Crafts Exhibition Society. And the reason that whole movement was born, it was really kind of a, a counteraction, a counter reaction to what was happening, especially in England at that time. And whenever you look at the wood engraving revival, and especially in this exhibition, a lot of the women artists were English and lived in England. And when you think it towards the end of the 1800s, the 19th century, things were starting to move very fast. Like we had the Industrial Revolution, technology was increasing, man-made things weren't being used as much, everything was starting to become machine-made and just the world was moving quicker. And that kind of human interaction with objects was starting to fade. And the movement was born out of a desire to celebrate this kind of human connection with making objects and to slow down and to go back to these traditional skills. And often, especially for certain parts of England, sort of local traditional celebrated skills that have been passed on generation to generation and I think there was definitely a fear of those dying out and that's really why the arts and crafts movement became popular and was born and then as I said the wood engraving revival came out of that and it was really around maybe more the sort of early 1900s and women were really at the centre of the wood engraving revival and that's something I discovered more and more through my research for making her mark and this was really because of education opening up to women. A lot of women could then access technical colleges and schools at that time that couldn't before, and such as the Central School of Arts and Crafts, which is now Central St Martin's became, and the Central School of Arts and Crafts was the first to teach wood engraving as a skill, and it accepted women students. But I think also the fact that women were particularly involved with this making process was because a lot of areas that had been maybe where commercial printmaking had been where wood engraving had previously sat that had been controlled by men those fields were moving on to new technologies so there was kind of the space in a way left for women to take over and you, I find that a lot through art history you notice that women artists move in where there's they've been kind of allowed not allowed but they've taken space of things that have maybe been left behind by other makers in order to make their own and that's very much what happened with the wood engraving revival and there was an artist and educator and author, Sarah Fuller, who appealed to a lot of women to, to go into the field of wood engraving. And she said, 
a skillful engraver can usually earn more money than most of the other female or feminine employments was her term but she was trying to encourage women to join engraving because it was a way to earn money because of this fashion and because people were buying engravings you think that print is a more affordable art form to purchase so people wanted to buy engravings people were also buying because of the fashions of arts and crafts were buying books that had been printed in small private presses so there was opportunities for employment for women and also as I said it's this fashion of the time of arts and crafts and that came from the arts and crafts movement but also the wood engraving fashion came from there was a huge Gauguin exhibition that came over from Paris to London in the early 1900s that really sparked this interest in this look and this aesthetic of wood engraving and then also there was a popularity around Japanese print and well Japanese culture in general because there have been trade openings between Western Europe and Japan leading up to that time and during that time so there was a big fashion for anything Japanese at the time and a lot of printmakers in making her mark were inspired by Japanese culture so actually Ethel Gaben who I mentioned I think her first print was a copy of a Japanese print and Margaret Pilkington actually signed her prints in very similar to a Japanese signature. So there was all these elements sort of came together at the right time to really make wood engraving kind of this sort of desired art form for women artists. Oh, I think that's fascinating. Um, and I think the exhibi- exhibition really does such a good job of piecing together um, all those kind of circumstances and the environment that really allowed this movement to be born and I think just when you see you know just the amount of pieces as well like you can feel that there is a revival and that there was something happening to allow this kind of form to take off um, and I find that really interesting what you said about you know the form becoming outdated because of the rise of things like photography and you know it was that very sense of it going out of fashion that actually left it open to be reinvigorated and reclaimed by women Um, and I think that's so interesting because many women were using it to advocate for social change even though it was a traditional medium Um, so I wonder could you tell us about what kind of causes and changes they were advocating for and expressing through their art I think it's a common thread that runs through the exhibition amongst all the women. The exhibition and the publication is based around really the biographies of each of these women artists and it's something that it does link them all together is they're advocating for social change. I think it's very important when we look back at the lives of these women that we sort of remember, I think we can often make the mistake of looking at sort of women of the past who were maybe seen as radical then and looking at them through our own kind of 21st century lens and looking at them now and thinking well that wasn't that radical like that's not a big deal to me but you have to remember what they were saying and what they were doing at the time so when I think about Gertrude Hermes she was very involved in women's rights they were all actually most of them were involved in some kind of suffrage movement at some point no matter even the ones who were born a lot earlier than some of the artists in the exhibition But Gertrude Hermes really advocated for women's rights. And also she was very outspoken that both parents needed to be equally responsible for children. And hearing that now, you're like, well, that's quite a common belief now. But back then to say that, like in the 1920s, that was considered a radical notion that parents equally co-parented their children. And then you've got people like Margaret Pilkington, who was very passionate about the fact that she recognised her own privilege and she was passionate that people of privilege should use their opportunities to help others. And she was really part of what we now know as like modern museum education and outreach. But, you know, she felt like museums should be social spaces and they should be accessible for everyone and they should be used as tools for learning, which to us doesn't sound like a big deal. But back then it was. And I think it's important to recognise that the conversations that these women were having then were part of suffrage and opened up freedoms that we now get to, not even just women, like everyone gets to use these freedoms every day. So I think it's really important to remember that. Most of them as well also contributed to feminist magazines. So Agnes Miller Parker and Gertrude Hermes wrote for a feminist publication, Time and Tide. Gwen Raverett designed anti-Franco propaganda posters. Claire Layton was very interesting because she was very passionate about showing people of privilege the work that went in to the products that they used. She wanted to show and celebrate manual labour and to make people realise how much manual labour went into food production, craft production, 
just everyday daily goods and how much that relied on manual workers and that's what she depicted a lot in her prints and then a lot of her prints were then published in the New Leader Socialist magazine. So really they were having conversations that now we maybe take for granted but for women to do this at the time and also professionally push forward these ideas that could have been seen as quite risky was pretty radical. No totally and I think that really came across. I remember sort of feeling inspired by the tenacity and innovation of these artists. Like, despite the oppressive structures that they were surrounded by, they understood how to manipulate those prejudices in order to make sure that they were heard, um, which I think applies to, you know, their use of printmaking, um, but also in other mediums. Like, for example, I was reading about in the publication... Um, Elizabeth Thompson Butler and her sister, the writer Alice Mayle, um, and Butler was one of the first artists to depict the true horrors of the war through her art. And then Mayle wrote art criticism about her paintings, about her sister Butler's paintings, as a way to advocate for military reform because she was aware that actually if she was just writing that herself and trying to bring it to journalists, they would completely dismiss her. But doing it under kind of the veil of art criticism, she could nearly like smuggle her ideas in that way because it seemed more appropriate or more acceptable for women to write about that. This was one of the most fascinating things I came across in my research and I became a little bit obsessed with it for a while. But it was this idea how sort of in the late 1800s, so it's important to point out that Lady Elizabeth Butler was practising in the 1870s. So she's the earliest work in the exhibition and the publication. So it's sort of before a lot of these more sort of socialist views were coming into play later on with the other women. And as you say, she was one of the first people to to really show the atrocities of war in her work. Though she wasn't anti-war, she wasn't anti-military, she did advocate for military reform with her sister. But it was something that I just found really interesting was this idea that, yeah, women were writing quite political and new thinking pieces of work but they couldn't do it in newspapers or political publications because they wouldn't publish them and women weren't seen as really being allowed to do that. They could actually actually just get in trouble. And so they found different ways of communicating what they thought. And I think, especially through art criticism, it was kind of seen like, oh, that's just a lady talking about art. That's fine. We can, you know, we'll let her do that. And and it was other women read what women wrote. So they sort of had this kind of secret communication amongst themselves. And actually towards, I think it was between 1880 and 1900, over 210 new magazines were launched that were ladies' magazines, this idea, and they were expected, I guess, to be about, like, fashion and decoration. But they often had quite political information in them and political conversations. And, yes, you mentioned Alice Maynell, who was the Elizabeth Butler's sister, who wrote a lot about... They kind of had an agreement that Elizabeth Butler was travelling with her husband, who was in the military, so she was seeing all these things around the world, so she would paint them, and then her sister would write about them. But I also came across, there's this book, Critical Voices by Megan Clark, which is an amazing book that really talks about all of this. And she talks about this woman, Florence Fenwick Miller, who had trained as a nurse and then did a medical degree in Edinburgh, but wasn't allowed to become a doctor at that time. And then she started becoming more sort of politically involved in medical work and trying to advocate for reforms for medicine and a lot to do with midwifery reforming and child rearing. And she started writing about it in medical journals and got into trouble and her work wasn't published. She started writing about artists as a way to talk about her desire for changes in the medical profession. And I thought that was just fascinating to see this whole other way of communicating that was kind of ignored because they were just sort of seen as, oh, it's just a bunch of ladies talking about dresses. So we're not going to even read what they're saying, but they were passing across this really important information between each other. Yeah, I love hearing about that. I just find it so impressive, like when you consider everything that they were up against and how they were so, so able to see and really analyse the barriers they faced and invent and come up with new ways of overcoming them. And like, I don't know, I just think women will always find a way there to overcome and ensure that their voices are heard no matter you know, what kind of new way they have to come up with of doing that. Um, But I also just want to pick up on what you said there previously about, 
you know, the fact that these women were radical also just simply by existing as artists, because I completely appreciate what you're saying there. It can be difficult for us to kind of, you know, put ourselves in their shoes and to understand that when we're look, looking back and kind of comparing, I suppose, as you said, almost with, you know, modern day, these ideas wouldn't be so impressive or radical and I think you know my experience going in as a participant in a group with a lot of young women who were brought into the museum to make and you know some of them would have had like artistic practices outside of it and everything that like that was difficult for us to fully kind of comprehend and hold but then in another way you just need to look at the research that had to be done to ensure these artists weren't forgotten and to have that feeling that actually what they were doing was extraordinary and to to really appreciate and understand their fight because in a way you know just executing that exhibition is redoing the kind of work that they had to do just to exist it was almost like you know they had this fight when they were making their art and then there's this work now being done again to make sure that it's seen and you know, it's almost redoing that work. Um, and I think, you know, that's something that's interesting to me um, and kind of how that has to be done. And I'd love to hear more about what you think of that. I know I agree with you. Like there's there's so much, there's these parallels between what's going on now, especially from talking. I have a lot of friends who are artists and I, like, I'm very lucky in my job. I get to talk to artists all the time and I hear a lot of women artists and the struggles that they have now to work as women artists. And obviously they're different, but also similar to artists, these women back then. It's been wonderful to see the reception to this exhibition and the publication and how excited people have been about your work, like yourself and, and how inspired. And then it is very sad to think that the amount of extra effort it took to make this exhibition happen than if it had been an exhibition about a bunch of male printmakers. It, you know, it took longer to research because most of these women aren't, they're not even on Wikipedia. Like you can't, it's not easy to access the information about them like researching women artists does actually take longer than researching male artists because the information isn't out there there's an artist well a few of them were all married to, to male artists and whenever you would find information about them the information would just be about what their husband did so it was like I spent a lot of time like finding publications and then the whole publication would just be like an ode to the the man she was married to and it just took more time and physically was more, like, you know, I had to travel to do a lot of the research you have to go places to find the one place that has this one book about Margaret Pilkington and it's exciting to be able to do it but it is also frustrating why is it so hard to do this and then also there's that fear that it's seen as because it was you know an exhibition in 2018 about celebrating women artists that are people just not going to go to it because they're just sort of dismiss it and there are people who are like that and it's trying to make people realize that no you don't want it to be a tokenistic thing as well because it's it's not they're not there because they're women they're there because they're really good artists and they're in the collection because they were very good at what they did so it's a strange balance that you're always trying to get and then also you want the exhibition to live on and not them to kind of fall away again. So it's wonderful to be able to have a publication that, you know, people are now interested in. And like, you know, this exhibition closed over a year ago and we're still talking about it, which is wonderful. But then there are still these parallels between the struggles that women artists have now. And it's interesting that in the Subject Specialist Network group that I'm in, we talk about this a lot. And we talk about this idea between a professional and an amateur artist. And years ago... I think it was like you were only really acknowledged as a professional artist if you had a studio. But loads of, like lots of artists now don't have a studio. A lot of artists have to work from home. But back then, especially women, then the reason maybe they did use this kind of physically quite small practice of wood engraving was that you could do it at home. You were able to like look after your children and work at the same time. And it's sad and scary that that's still a struggle that a lot of women artists have. It's like, how do they establish themselves as professional and have a studio practice, but also deal with childcare, other jobs as well. Like most artists now have have other jobs as well to support their practice. So there's these parallels that run between artists now and artists then that I think are important to talk about. No, definitely. And, you know, it's great, as you say, that this exhibition has the legacy with the publication and that, you know, here we are having these discussions about that at the minute. Um, and I thought something really that was interesting as well from just reading the publication and delving in further a bit to more of the stories in it um, and the detail in it. 
So despite what I would kind of say as the ingenuity of these women in understanding the barriers that they faced and overcoming them, actually, like often these acts of innovation, what I would call them, were still met by some form of prejudice. So an example of this um, in the publication, it says that often women painted flowers because it was a financially successful um, option for them and it provided them with the independence they needed then to exist as artists um, but actually that was looked on as being amateur and looked down upon even though to me that seems quite impressive and resourceful um, and I was wondering if you could just tell us a bit more of that perception around that kind of work and um, your research into that. Yeah so you're specifically talking about actually the Catherine Cameron label which is interesting because, as I said, it's often very hard to find information on women artists. And where I couldn't find information to be able to write a sufficient label on, on a woman, I did use it as the opportunity to kind of talk about wider notions of women's art. And Catherine Cameron was a Scottish artist. And I'd love to know more. And if anybody ever, anybody ever listening to this can find out more and tell me, it'd be wonderful. But she was a Scottish artist. She contributed to a lot of publications and created these beautiful floral works and we have two in the collection and it got me thinking about other research that I've done about women artists and there's an Irish a Dublin-born woman called Moira Barry who's in our collection she went to the Slade School of Art which was the first art school to fully accept women in and I think it was like in the late 1800s and it fully accepted women as full-time students, first art school to do that, and they could have proper professional practice and study. And I think they were sort of 30, 40 years ahead of everyone else. So she went there and was taught. She was a very talented painter and she honed her skill as a talented painter at the Slade and then moved back to Dublin. She came from, her father was a farmer, but then he ended up establishing a business in sort of selling farm machinery or farm supplies. So they were they weren't wealthy, but they were sort of decently well off. But I think her father died and then she ended up having to support her mother and the rest of her family. And she had to do that through her own skill, which was painting. And she painted a lot of flowers. And to me, I just think that's just good business acumen. Like she needed to support her family. She was very good at painting. And as a woman artist in Dublin, she knew that women would buy her work and women would buy wealthy women wanted nice paintings of flowers so she painted them for them and they bought them and that's how she had a career and it's a shame that because she did paint more than and there's some beautiful um figure studies out there in different public collections and some still lives as well and I would love to see more work by her but I think even because of a lot of her work being these floral works she isn't talked about or considered as much because she wasn't maybe part of there was a lot of exciting things going on in Irish art at the time she was practising and she wasn't necessarily part of those things, but it doesn't mean that she wasn't an important, incredible artist. Exactly. And I think there's almost like, I know it frustrates me almost to hear, you know, that that label would have been given to her as an amateur, but like it sounded like, you know, she was really intelligent in what she was doing. And as you said, had that business acumen. And it's just kind of, it makes me even happier to see her included then in the publication and in the exhibition because it actually brings that kind of story to light as well and makes us aware of what women artists had to do too. Um, so I think it's really interesting how these artists use their art and their medium to kind of reflect the world around them. So we mentioned earlier about Leighton and what she was depicting in her art and there's a really interesting detail in the publication um, that her childhood nickname was Bystander. And I think, you know, that sense comes across there of her constantly observing. And I think there's an interesting point there to be made about the role of artists as documenting their surroundings and, you know, presenting what was happening in that historical moment. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit about, you know, what it was that they were documenting and maybe why the form lent itself to that as well. I think Leighton's particularly interesting, as I said, she travelled and then she ends up moving to and settling in America. And a lot of her work was about depicting rural life and then manual labour and sort of different labour and rural practices across England and then, and then America. I love her name as the bystander that was given to her by her brother as a child. And I think it was sadly her brother who died in the First World War. And it was something that really stuck with her. And actually, it's something that runs as a thread through the whole exhibition, that most of the women in this exhibition had lived through a major war. And 
I think bystander is a word I always come back to because they weren't necessarily involved in these wars and atrocities, but they were very much affected by them. Obviously, the women who were alive through World War Two and World War One were maybe more actively involved with the war effort, but they didn't really have control over what was happening. And they definitely were these bystanders to what was happening in the world around them. And they chose their art to reflect on that. And I think Mabel Ansley is interesting in that case because she didn't necessarily record literally what was going on around her at that time, especially through the First World War. But the effects of the First World War made her say that she would never paint again in colour. And I think that was a really interesting sort of example of how the world around them and what they're recording was affecting their practice. And then also you've got Elizabeth Rivers, Irish artist who's in the exhibition. And that's quite an interesting story also to think of with recording women artists. I was desperately trying to find sort of work by her and publications by her. And I found a publication in the British Library that was a book that she illustrated herself, but she used... The titles that she made for each work were from a book written by Charles Lamb, which was about his time in Bedlam in the 1700s. And because she had used his words to title her images, the book was held in the British Library as under his name. So I only just happened to manage to come across it. It was very exciting. But that book was all about the atrocities of war. And it weren't actual little representations of war, but they were commenting on the harrowing time and what had happened during World War One. And I think it's really, it's just testament to this idea of these artists being affected by what was going on and commenting on it, but not necessarily recording it, depicting actual acts in certain ways, even though Elizabeth Butler did. But these artists in, in the 20th century did it in a far more clever way. That's exactly what my kind of perception of that is because I think like strict recording you'd associate that with something more like photography and that kind of documentary style but I think actually there's something in this form that can kind of show or document something that's not so visible and sort of how that would have felt for them and I think that comment really by Ansley is really striking about that she lost the desire for colour um, at that time and I think that's something that really sticks with me and you can get it really a sense of something that couldn't really be strictly recorded in a photograph or something there um, and that their art can express and betray a very different side to that as well um, so something I really want to ask you um, there's such a range of biographies and styles and pieces in the publication and the exhibition and so I was really wondering because this is something I think I would find quite hard to choose is do you have a favourite? Hmm. I guess it changes every day I'm terrible like I say obviously there's that Ethel Gabin print which personally to me I love because it was one of the first prints that kind of sparked this whole thing and I think at the minute I've two at the minute <laughs> and one would be Margaret Pilkington I think for a number of reasons. She's not really known as a wood engraver or an artist. She was an arts advocate, really. She was the honorary director of the Whitworth in Manchester, that museum, but it was an honorary title that you don't get paid, but she worked as if she got paid. And she, it, it's this notion that she recognised her privilege, which is something that is, you know, very much a conversation right now about what we all should be doing. And she recognised her privilege and used that to help other people and saw that her access to art and information was something that she needed to share with people and she did so many exciting things like she helped make sure the Whitworth opened up as a shelter during the war for people who were made homeless she was very outspoken about the, the wage gap in the 1920s and the fact that there was this widening gap between rich and poor in the 1920s and something needed to be done about that she also campaigned for women to be more independent from marriage and not see marriage as this only option to be able to survive. She was lucky that she didn't, she had her own independent wealth, but she recognised her place as someone who had all this wealth and privilege and that she should use that to help others. And she's just someone I think about all the time. What also makes me quite sad about her works, whenever we were doing the publication for this, we were getting all the copyright information for everyone and contacting everyone's estates and you have to make sure you've got all the copyright cleared with whoever owns the image rights still haven't found who owns margaret pilkinson's image rights that are orphan works and it's so sad because it's someone who's one of the most important women in especially in manchester in the arts and we haven't been able to find the person who 
is a relative or has taken ownership of her image. And that just makes me really sad because she was someone who was so important. And to think of her now, you could imagine her in conversations about kind of what's going on currently and the things that she would have to say and what she would do now with all the technology and information that you have. You could imagine Margaret Bilkinson with an Instagram. I don't know what she would do, but it'd be really exciting. And the other person actually is Anne Bailey. I don't know if you remember the Anne Bailey print. It was kind of like the last print that anybody saw as they left the exhibition. And the label just said that I don't know anything about her. We found this print. I knew she went to the art college in Belfast and this was either displayed as part of an art college exhibition and then was bought by Ansley or she might have visited the art college. I didn't know if it was someone who'd just trained there and then gone off to do other things or if it was someone who'd just been an artist all her life. And that went up in the exhibition and that was the label. And a month before the exhibition closed, I got an email from a woman who said that Anne Bailey was my art teacher. And it was just so exciting. And she was able to send me, like, she um, grew up in Balnehinch and she had taught in Balnehinch and Downpatrick and she taught at the grammar school in Downpatrick. And she was able to tell me how amazing she was and how inspiring she was. And the fact that it was just, I now have this biography of her. And sadly, the publication had just gone to print and I couldn't change it. But if we ever reprint it, I'm going to have that at the end of it, just to say that through this exhibition, we discovered an artist that we didn't know anything about before by creating access to the artworks that, you know, a woman went to see it. And she was so emotional because it was someone she hadn't thought about in years. And there she was getting to to share her with us. It was so exciting. You think of an exhibition is over when you kind of put it on the walls and the research is done and you, you move on to the next thing. And it just proved that by inviting the public in to have conversations, it wasn't over and it's still ongoing. And now we have that information about Anne Bailey to add to our record. And long after I'm gone and long after that woman who got in touch is gone, that will be part of Anne Bailey's legacy. So it's very exciting. Yeah, that's a really amazing story to hear. And I think it's definitely testimony to the work that you've done in that exhibition um, and to your ethos as well um, you know as a creator and as someone who sees the museum as somewhere for arts education and I love that you know you spoke about Pilkington's um, inspiration there around that too so I think that's amazing and you know there is a real legacy you know even beyond the publication beyond the exhibition um, so it's wonderful to hear um. I think my last question really just for you then, Anna, is what's next for you then as a creator and what we can expect to see at the Ulster Museum? Well, that exhibition really was the start of trying to, for me, to look at how we put together exhibitions in the Ulster Museum differently. I kind of always made jokes during 2018 when I was doing the Hear Her Voice programme of events that like, yeah back in 2019 we can't go back to just talking about like white rich men again it's like it wasn't I, I was really scared of it being tokenistic and also with it being an exhibition just about women artists I didn't want to isolate artists by just being like oh women artists sit on their own over here and then we'll talk about the rest of it so since then the exhibition I had after that was called Changing Views I made a conscious effort to have a 50-50 representation of women artists and male artists in that exhibition I always try strive to have at least 30% so at least I can sort of represent that historic narrative of women always really making up a third of professional artistic practice. But going forward now, there's just so much more I really want to do. I think though that exhibition was really important by showcasing women's art and women's practice, every woman in the exhibition was white and every woman in the exhibition came from not all very wealthy backgrounds, but came from a certain level of, of privilege and access to education that wasn't available to everyone. So moving forward, I'm hoping to be able to put exhibitions together that are more reflective and more diverse of history and also just really our own community and our own population in Belfast so that people feel better represented within the museum. I am very lucky in my role that I also get to develop the collection. So I have been developing the collection and pretty much only collecting women artists over the last few years. The Austrian Museum collection is unusual in that we have quite a good representation of women artists compared to other nationals. Like the average is 4% women artists in like national museums, which is terrifying. And we're more like 25 to 30%, which still isn't good enough, but it's, it's, it's okay. It's a good foundation. So I am developing that. But also now it's about 
getting beyond just reflecting kind of one type of person and also I'm very aware as a white woman it's not up to me to be doing this by myself so I want to take my time and kind of consult with people and involve other artists and people from the arts community in Ireland to help me develop the collection further and both historically and, and, and in the contemporary works on paper collection as well so lots of things to come and hopefully there won't be a need for these kind of tokenistic is a terrible word but these kind of one-off exhibitions just about women artists I'm hoping we won't have to do that again I'm hoping it'll just be part of our practice that women are and well sort of anybody who identifies as any gender is represented equally and we don't have to sort of create these very sort of special exhibitions in order to represent different stories I'm also really excited about what we're all going to see from Reimagine Remake Replay in the next year and thinking back to 2018, whenever you were a participant and we started this kind of journey of working with Reimagine, Remake, Replay and you very much all came in at the end of an exhibition that was about the programming. I'm looking forward to next year sort of developing exhibitions in tandem with Reimagine, Remake, Replay. So it's been wonderful to kind of start the conversation around that today. Thanks so much, Anna. It's been great to put some questions to you and to reminisce, as you say, on the exhibition. But we're also we're really looking forward to what will be coming up um, in the next year of the project. And I think that experience of getting involved um, and seeing how you go about creating an exhibition and actually being involved in that will be brilliant for our participants and something we're all really looking forward to. Thanks so much, Neve, for taking the time to talk to me today. It's been really nice to think back to the exhibition and sort of remember it and revisit the artists included. And also just to say for anyone listening that they can find out information on all Reimagine Remake Replay's social media sites about lots of events and programmes you've got coming up. And obviously you can hear about our exhibitions through the Ulster Museum's social media. Thanks again, Neve. Thanks, bye. I think we covered a lot there with Neve. Thanks to her for sharing her experiences of RRR with me and for looking back at one of my favourite exhibitions to curate. Next week's podcast is the last in our series. It is an interview with a curator from the Cordold in London, Dr Rachel Sloan, and we talk about the print on display in Remoir and the New Era, our partnership exhibition as part of the Cordold National Partners Programme, which is part of the Cordold Connects Transformation Project. Fine Print Podcast was produced as part of the Ulster Museum Exhibition Programme. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review to help like-minded people discover it for themselves. For more information on the exhibitions mentioned in the series and wider Ulster Museum activity, please visit our website, nmni.com, or follow us on social media.